about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So the first Bible reading comes from Isaiah chapter 65, and you can find that on page uh, 742 from the Pew Bibles. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, Here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of unclean meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day, See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your father, says the Lord, because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoke philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. 
In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oreopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Uh, we are looking at the book of Acts. We've been looking at the book of Acts the whole of this year, really. Um, in this, this second half of the series, we've been considering how <clears throat> once the proclamation of Jesus gets going, you can't really stop it. The grace of Jesus is, and his lordship and the power of the Spirit unleashed in the world is a, is a juggernaut of a thing. Uh, and we've been watching that juggernaut kind of roll through Greece and Turkey. And uh, we, we come this week to the, the city of Athens, finally. And, and as we hit the, the city of Athens, which is that beautiful, unsurpassed part of Western culture, it's sculpture, it's literature, it's oratory skill, it's philosophy, it's known as the cradle of democracy. It is unsurpassed in Western culture in its uh, impact upon the development of ideas and beauty and art in so many ways. We see the juggernaut rock up to Athens. And the question it raises is one that we ask really frequently, I think. How will the gospel relate to culture in a place like that? In our imagination, I think, uh, at the moment when we think of the coming of Christ to a land where he is not known, we think of our own story as a country and Christendom kind of crashing into the indigenous population and their spirituality and kind of rolling over it. Or perhaps, on the other hand, you might have in your imagination the monastic response to culture to kind of separate completely from it and head for the hills. I'm not sure if anyone in here is in danger of that. Let me know. We can chat about it. Uh, but maybe we're in danger of separating faith into our hearts and never letting out again, retreating from culture. What we see Paul do here in Athens, which is, tells us how to do it everywhere, really, is neither. Isn't steamroll this great cultural center? He doesn't retreat from it either. He enters into it and subverts it in a beautiful way. What I want to do is uh, take you through three things about engaging culture that Paul shows us here uh, that, that might help you understand how to do that and how I think the Bible really calls us to do that as God's people. And the first one I want to say is this. As the gospel rolls into Athens with Paul, we see Paul both deeply engaged and deeply distressed. And I think to be balanced and to engage culture properly, you can't really be one ever without the other. And so we see him roll in. He's kind of on a, a stopover. You know, you end up in Bangkok for a night. That's kind of Paul in Athens. And in verse 16, he, he rocks in there and straight away he's engaged spiritually with it as a city. He sees that it's a city full of idols. You learn a bit later that he doesn't just uh, notice that. He, he studies it, he says in verse 22 and 23. I've, I've carefully looked at all of your idols. I've found this inscription to an unknown God. He doesn't just notice things. He's deeply considering the spirituality of Athens. 
What gives it its shape, its substance, its questions? He sees the superstitious and deeply religious nature of it as a place. He's spiritually engaged with it. And that spiritual engagement leads him in verse 17 to a, to a cultural engagement. He, he reasons in the synagogue and then he goes into the marketplace day by day. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Athens. I don't know that much. But the, the marketplace, the agora of Athens was world-renowned. It wasn't the place where you bought your apples, although you could probably buy apples there. It was the place where you had a civic election. It's the place where you would celebrate uh, a victory after a war. It's where you'd have a dramatic uh, performance. It's where you'd visit a temple. It's where you would go shopping, not just for the ordinary things of life, but the, the, the deep things of life. As the Athenians did, they'd gather to hear the latest new idea, verse 21. They'd they'd gather to find their soul. And where does Paul go with the gospel? He's driven by his spiritual engagement to a cultural engagement. He takes the gospel into the agora, into the economic, artistic center of Athens. Is that where you think the gospel belongs? Or do you think the gospel is just for church and the synagogue? For Paul, the gospel belongs in the Agora. And in the Agora, there were these long kind of uh, uh, overhanging areas with large columns called the Stoas. And and people would walk amongst these Stoas and they'd find their favorite philosopher and have a chat. Uh, And and they'd uh, they'd hear about this new guy in town and have another one. And, And what you see Paul doing is intellectually engaging in that. He might even be using the Socratic method with these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Uh, And they're so uh, interested and kind of revolted in what he says that they invite him into further engagement. What you see Paul doing here is connecting the gospel to Athenian society in an Athenian way in Athenian spaces. He is deeply engaged spiritually, intellectually, culturally, even poetically with the culture, with the stuff of Athens. Do you think the gospel belongs not only in this church, but in Martin Place? On George Street? Along the harbour? In Parramatta? Out through Western Sydney? Do you think it has a space in discussions of economics and philosophy and artistry and elections and all those kinds of things? Paul does. But he's not just deeply engaged, is he? He's deeply distressed. You see that in verse 16. He, he sees this city full of idols and it, it, it says that his spirit is kind of overturned within him. And I'm not sure if distressed is quite the right right word for what he's experiencing. Perhaps the word provoked from Isaiah 65, that's why he had that reading just before, uh, is a better word. He's churned up with this kind of jealous frustration at what he sees happening in Athens. In the Old Testament, the word provoked spoke of, uh, and you see it beautifully in Isaiah 65, God talks about, your idols have provoked me to my face. They're like snow, uh, uh, smoke in my nostrils. I love that. In, up in my nostrils, up in my grill. With your uh, idolatry, you're provoking me to my face. 
the picture in the Old Testament is that God takes idolatry as deep personal offense. And what Paul is feeling is God's jealousy. His spirit is being churned up like the prophecy and the prophets of the Old Testament. Now it's worth pausing and considering, well, why is that? That seems a bit extreme, but let's think about what idolatry is for a second. And for some reason, I can't think of idolatry and make sense of it without Anna Karenina now. I'm not sure how that happened, <laughs> but that's a thing. And uh, I always think about Anna and Vronsky, the, the kind of the main love story in the middle of Anna Karenina, and what they say in their hearts about the other. So Vronsky, great moustache, knew only that he was going where she was. That the whole happiness of life, the sole meaning of life, he now found in seeing and hearing her. Anna clearly understood from the sadness which came over her that this pursuit not only was not unpleasant for her, but constituted the entire interest of her life. You see, what, what an idol is, and you see it so clearly here, is when there's someone or something in your life that you point to when you say, this is the thing that makes my life worthwhile. This is the driving force of my interest and my happiness. In the Bible, when something rises to that level of importance, good though it may be, like a beautiful romance, uh, it usurps the place of the life giver, of the one who gives us our happiness and our meaning and is to be the, the interest of our life. And when he is displaced by an Anna or a Vronsky or a bank account or a, uh, an image or a sense of control or power over others, he feels jealous anger. He is personally provoked. And that's what, that's what Paul is feeling as he, as he walks among the city. Imagine walking among Sydney and not just seeing greed, but feeling like this piece of greed over here. God is longing for that to come up to him instead. And he's provoked by it, by this obsession over control, this obsession over image. And, uh, and that is what is churning up Paul. You see, uh, the, the secret to cultural engagement for Paul is to be both deeply engaged and deeply distressed or provoked. And one without the other is dangerous. If you're just provoked and you're not engaged, you're probably just feeling morally superior to other people. You're not feeling the emotions of God. And if, and if you're engaged but not provoked, well, it, it turns out that you're probably just immersed in culture and you can't separate yourself from the idols that it follows. Deeply engaged and deeply distressed. The problem with culture is not its poetry, not its economics necessarily, or its intellect or whatever. The problem is always its worship. That's why you can be deeply engaged and deeply distressed. But the second thing is this we see here. As you look at uh, Paul's sermon and, and the way he describes who God is, you start to get a picture that Paul's engagement and his distress is driven by his vision, his glorious vision of who God is. You see, the second thing you need for cultural engagement is a stunning picture of who the real God is. Because that's the thing that you use to confront culture. And that's the thing you need to drive you into culture in exactly the right way. 
Uh, what Paul does after an intro of 22 and 23, I'll come back to that, um, he, he describes the, the Jewish picture of God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and, and earth and doesn't live in temples built by hands. This is the, the Jewish picture of the world. There is one creator, not a pantheon of gods, and he is in control of all things. Men don't control him. Women don't control him. You don't build temples and, and pull him uh, under your wings. And yet, verse 25, he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He's not only the the high Lord, creator of all things, he is the intimate sustainer, present to all of his creation at all times and in every way by his spirit. Not only that, but from one man, verse 26, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth He determined times for them and exact places where they should live. This is fascinating stuff. God is not just the the, the sustainer of life. He's set up the places and times for different people to live at different moments in history on different parts of the planet. What does that mean? Could it mean that he's the author of human culture? That he set the Gadigal people of the Eora nation in this space, and he set the Maoris in New Zealand, and he set the Athenians in their city limits, and he set you here in this time and, and this place. Could it be that this God who is exalted Lord of all and, and the one who sustains everything by his spirit also opens up space for different human cultures to flourish? That's Paul's vision of this God. Part of... Uh, Paul's audience, the Epicureans, would have really struggled with this. They had an idea that not, there's nothing to fear in God, that God's this faraway, distant person. And most people in Newtown, I've found, aren't atheists, but they have an Epicurean view of God. He's faraway, distant. And I think our cultural engagement is actually wounded by our embrace of God's distance. He is the ascended Lord of all who made all things, and yet he set up every human and every human place in all of human history across this planet. He is present to all of his creation. And see, when when you have that sort of vision of God, that he's involved in that way in human life and culture, that will send you into the Agora, won't it? Because all of a sudden, he was already there before you. He already ordained the time and the space for the people of Sydney to live here. He is amongst the poetry and the philosophy in some strange, kind and generous way. And yet, don't forget also in verse 27, the reason why he sets people in places. God did this so what? So that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. The reason why he sets people in different places is so that they would reach out and know him. They reach up their hands. It says literally that they might grope around in the darkness and maybe grab hold of me. Uh, it, it talks about, uh, for in him we live and move and have our being, quoting a Stoic philosopher. And the Stoics believed that there was this kind of fatherhood of God, that God, we're his offspring and we have divine sparks in us and God indwells us uh, as the soul of all the world. They believed in God being so close to them. And, and Paul kind of looks at them and says, that's kind of right and kind of wrong. You, you're not God. You don't have a spark in you. 
but God is personally interested in you. That you might reach out and know Him. That you might come to know Him as Father, even. You see, when you have that view of God, a personal view of God, that God can be provoked. You know, if God is just a benign substance that binds you to me and the world together, then he can't be provoked. He's not a person. But that's not what you see here. Paul's rejecting the stoic view of the world. God is personal, and that means that he can be provoked. You know, have you ever provoked your father? I have. It's very easy. (laughs) You just do dumb things. And because I'm in a relationship with him, I provoke him. You know, this vision of God as the one who is transcendent Lord of all, yet present to all things in every way, setting everything up and personal. The, the, who Paul is and the way he operates makes total sense that he'd go into the Agora and that he would feel the distress that God feels provoked in himself at the way that God is jealously provoked by idol, idolatry. You see, the reason why you might not feel provoked or you might not feel uh, engaged with culture is because you don't believe this vision of God. Practically in your day-to-day life, you believe in a distant God or a benign, impersonal God or anything but this. When this is in your vision, when this is in your bones, it will drive you to uh, distress and into the agora. But the third thing is this. This is really important. And you see this in the text. Uh, It's very important that you're okay with being a babbler. It is very important that you're okay with being a babbler. I love this text. I love this sermon. I think I really like sounding smart. Like, I really love sounding smart. Uh, you know, uh, and Paul sounds so smart through most of this. You know, He's so intelligent and coherent. He quotes poets and philosophers, and it's beautiful and nuanced, and he accepts things and rejects others. It's a piece of rhetoric and mastery of philosophy and intellect and rhetoric, and I just love it. But he also says stuff that's just crazy. Uh, when he gets... Uh, to the end of his sermon, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the Areopagus starts to laugh. Uh, earlier in the text, in verse 18, when he talks about the resurrection in the Stoas in the Agora, do you know what they call him? They call him a babbler, and that's not a nice word. Uh, it kind of means uh, a word for the people scavenging around the marketplace. One person I read said, it's kind of like calling him a third-rate journalist. You know, Someone who gets their news from the guy who got the news who from, got it from the source. But maybe the Aussie translation is he's being called a bin chicken. You know, scroungy, dirty, good for nothing. You know, and a bin chicken doesn't have an original idea in its bone. You know, um, And that, that's kind of what he's being called. He's being mocked mercilessly, this babbler, this bin chicken. And, uh, and you can understand why, because to the Greek understanding of the world, the resurrection is just nuts. The Epicureans didn't believe that there was anything after death at all, let alone a judgment. And the Stoics just thought that history just kept going round and around and around. And, and Paul gets up at the end of his sermon and says, guess what? God has set a day where he will judge the earth, and he's shown that by raising someone from the dead. You with me? And he gets laughed out of the Areopagus. 
He's so winsome for most of this, but then at the end, it all turns to babble. Why? Well, at the end of the day, what he actually wants to say to Athens is that they are, though they are wise and they've found so much out spiritually uh, and religiously and philosophically, at the end of the day, they are ignorant. He takes him, uh, talks to them about the, the, the altar to the unknown God, the uh, agnosto God, the agnostic God, that's the label. And he says, you know, I, I see that you've covered that base really well, well done, but let me tell you that there is a day coming when the God you do not know will hold you to account for your idolatry, your false image making, and your leaving of him aside. And he has proved that by raising someone from the dead. Let me tell you what he means. I've got a Father's Day story for you. When I was younger, I was quite young, I think, at this time, my dad came home with a parcel. It's quite a long parcel, quite thin. And for some reason, he put it in my room. I wasn't particularly interested in this parcel. It wasn't that interesting. Uh, but he did uh, leave it in such a way as it made a really nice ramp onto my bed. And that was uh, basically what me and my sister did the whole rest of the day, was just play on this ramp and like run, run along it and make things off it and tracks and all kinds of stuff. And at the end of the day, my dad walks in and sees what we're doing and this like look of horror is just coming across him. And he runs over and he, he grabs the package and he comes back over and he, he rips it off and he, he shows it and he says, do you see what you've done? And it is this beautiful painting with a glass cover that we've shattered and it's torn it to shreds. And he's holding it, provoked as, going, do you see what you've done? Yeah, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a, a day coming when for every person on the planet, the package gets ripped off. And you get to see what they've done. What, the, the, what their idolatry has done to the people around them, to themselves. And you will see God provoked in anger. You see, the babble that Paul has is the greatest truth that no philosophy or intellectual or human temple or human idol could ever bring Athens. It took the God of heaven to raise Jesus from the dead to show them that. It's as if they'd been groping around in the darkness looking for God and all of a sudden God says, okay, okay. Okay, okay, this is what you've been looking for, my son. And he will be your judge. It is in the babble of Paul's words that there is a greater truth and worth than all the philosophy of Athens. And so you have to be okay with being a babbler. Because Jesus Christ, you know, he was provoked and distressed in heaven. 
And he didn't just stick around in the market. He came down and took on your flesh, talked to people like you, engaged with people like you, deeply, truly, meaningfully. And he ended up in a place like the Areopagus and got laughed out and sneered and then beaten and taken out and strung up on a cross. And in his body, as he was lifted up, he bore in himself all of the wrath that you had provoked in God from your idolatry. So that on that day when you have to meet him, rather than facing his wrath, you will receive his life. You see, when your heart sees that, and then you walk around in Sydney, that's when you get provoked that people around wouldn't know the God like that who loves them. With such a day coming, when that is in your heart, it will drive you to a level of engagement that is deep and true. With that in your heart, you'll find ways to babble about Jesus and give out some of the most truthful and beautiful things that the people in your world need to hear. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you tonight uh, confronted a little bit by the reality of who you are and by the coming of Jesus and who he is to us and our world. And we're thankful that he in himself bears the wrath that we deserve. And we pray that we would have such a vision of his love and victory for us that it would drive us to deep engagement, to be deeply distressed, and to babble for Jesus' sake. Amen.